0: I'm Matt, if I haven't met you, if this is your first time here at RUF, um, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. No matter what you believe, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, we're really glad that you're here and we want you to feel welcome (coughs) here. Um, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship and we aspire to be a Christian campus ministry to walk alongside you during these formative years of college to help you grow in your faith. And we're seeking to figure out what it looks like for us to love God, to love others, to love Wofford, but we're a community of people before anything else. We're bound by the reality that God loves us, that before anything else, we want to be a ministry that teaches you from the scriptures and shows you that you are loved by God. And and tonight we're finishing up our series in the messy life of King David in the Old Testament. And we've seen a few things about him each week. Um... On the one hand, he is so relatable. He's shockingly relatable. He's just like us. He's lived a very messy, normal Christian life of running away from God, of coming back to him, of friendship, betrayal, of crying and laughing, of worshiping God, of being bitter and cynical towards him, of being hungry and lonely. This is David's life, and he was a walking contradiction. We've seen that. On on the one hand, his nickname is a man after God's own heart, king of Israel, super big deal. On the other hand, he commits adultery and murder, and we've, we've seen that, and his life falls apart because of this. Um, this is often where we live. Uh, on the one hand, we, we proclaim with our lips, and we sincerely believe that Jesus is good, and we're trying to follow him, and yet we have minds and hearts and actions that are prone to wander away from God as if we don't even know him at all. And so we too are walking contradictions like David and lastly, we're looking at the life of David and finishing up here tonight. What we'll see is that David points us to Jesus like no other Old Testament figure. He points us to Jesus. And tonight we're finishing off in, uh, actually, in the book of Ezekiel. You might see that in your handout there. And we've been in First and Second Samuel. It's the historical books of the Old Testament that document David's life. But Ezekiel is actually a prophecy that points to Jesus coming back. And it shows us in a really profound way how Jesus really uh, consummates and how he really fulfills everything that David was supposed to be. Jesus, in the way that he's depicted here in this passage, fulfills all of it. So when when we were children, um, before we became cynical um, and roll our eyes at fairy tales, we loved them. We used to love fairy tales, and maybe some of you do uh, still. And we love stories that end with the magic words of they lived happily ever after fairy tales they capture our imagination as a genre like no other genre does and they get down into our hearts where we we they expose our longings and ask questions where we're like is, is everything really going to be okay i mean we get very existential when we watch fairy tales because they penetrate through so much of our cynicism and the fogginess of life in a fallen world but as we grow older we're more aware increasingly of how broken the world is and these happily ever after words uh we begin to roll our eyes at those words more and more and over time it's easy for us to give in to like a defeatist cynical worldview and and mindset even as christians i think a modern day example of this i love him with all my heart though is stanley hudson from the office um you know it was coming um Maybe you're cynical and rolling your eyes at the office at this point. I would understand. Um, But this is a quote from Stanley, one of my favorites. I wake up every morning in a bed that's too small. I drive my daughter to a school that's too expensive. And then I go to a job. I go to work for a job that I get paid too little for. But on pretzel day, I love pretzel day. (laughs) I like pretzel day, too. If there's anyone who understands life in a fallen world in TV, um, because he's so cynical, but so, yep, so relatable, it's Stanley. He gets that life is just not right. It's just not right. In our passage tonight, what we're going to see is Ezekiel, God speaking through Ezekiel, his prophet, to God's people when they were really hopeless. They are extremely hopeless. They had no hope. They had essentially been kidnapped by Babylonians. They were in the Babylonian exile, as it's usually called. And uh, they had felt forgotten and hopeless. They remember all these covenant promises that God made to Abraham and David, and they're looking around in their circumstances, and they're like, where is he? That's the audience here for Ezekiel. Um, This is God's word. He has spoken to us not to give us an exam to master, or a book of rules to follow, He's spoken to us because He loves you and He loves me. I myself will be their shepherd, of my sh- of be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down. Declares the Lord God, and I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy, and I will feed them in justice. Then uh, chapter thirty four. I don't know if that's 24 on your handout or not, but it's actually 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and, he, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I'm am the Lord. I've spoken. It's chapter 37. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to (laughs) obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and they will uh, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Let's go to the Lord now and ask that he might teach us. God, we do uh, come to you, and we bow low. We bow. Um, Lord, we are in awe of who you are and how you speak to us, how you've done that all year and all semester through your holy word. But, Lord, we also want to come to you uh, honestly. And we just admit that our minds are busy and our hearts are restless right now and for all kinds of different reasons. And we ask that you would slow us down, that we might hear what you have us to say. To, to, we might hear what you have to teach us, that we might be changed from the inside out, that we actually would become more like Jesus during this time. We pray in his strong name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, so the game plan uh, is, is before you. You see the title, you see the two, the two blanks. Here's where we're going tonight. First thing that we're going to see is when the king comes back, when the king comes back and second, what it means for you and for me. When the king comes back and what that means for you and for me. That's where we're going tonight. So when the king comes back, okay, what, why Ezekiel and what is going on with Ezekiel? We've already got at this a little bit, but this passage was written 450 years after David had died. Okay, David is long gone at this point, after his life, after his death. God's people are in exile because of their idolatry against the Lord. They have been unfaithful to God and they find themselves in exile and they feel abandoned, alone, forgotten, and helpless. Well, other than idolatry, what else is going on? In, earlier in chapter 34, God begins to condemn false shepherds, bad shepherds. This is, this is clergy. This is religious officials and, and political leaders. Instead of looking out for themselves, these leaders uh, were actually uh, only looking out for themselves and neglecting God's flock. And God is angry about this. And so he is, he's condemned them. They're driven by selfish ambition and greed. And so the Lord is speaking to his people in this passage. He's giving them words of promise and hope when they really needed to hear it. In these texts, the Lord is saying, because these shepherds are failing to look after my people, I'm going to do it. <clears throat> because they won't protect my people and look out for them and root for them to flourish, I'm going to do it. I myself Will come to protect my people and save them. Did you notice how many first personal pronouns there are here? Twenty-four times in our passage, the personal first-person uh, pronoun "I" is used with God as the subject, followed by the verb. "I myself will do this. I myself will do that." What's the point here? God is the main actor. He's driving. He is in control. Not David. Not Abraham. Not me. Not you. He's the main actor. This is the moment when God, in relating to his people, he's saying, if my people are going to be forgiven, protected, restored to me, reconciled to me, I'm going to have to make it happen because these kings and shepherds aren't doing it. That's where we are. So what does God promise? What does he say he's going to do? What are all, what's going on with all these verbs? The first thing that we see, because this is, this, Jesus fulfills this. I want, to, I want to show my cards there. Jesus is being prophesied here. Um, Jesus is the good shepherd that this passage talks about. The first thing we see with Him is that He rescues us. Jesus rescues us. That's why Christ is described as a shepherd. Verse 12 and 16, we read that He's going to seek after and find His sheep. In 12, we see that He's going to rescue His sheep. In 13, we read that God's going to gather His sheep. He's going to go after them and bring them back. In 15, He says that he's going to be our shepherd. Jesus himself is the shepherd that we need. He seeks us out. He pursues us. He protects us. And you might know this. This might not be surprising. Sheep are not very smart. Sheep are not very smart. The Bible describes, y'all, the human condition, the human race, as those who have strayed away from our good shepherd. This is all of us. This is you and this is me. And I want us to think about this for a second. What does it say about us that we need a shepherd? It means we wander away. It means that we wander away if we're honest. And sheep wander away when they go away from the flock, when they go away from their shepherd. They actually don't know how to get back on their own. They don't know how to get back home by themselves. Someone has to come after them and get them. The shepherd has to, or they'll be lost forever. Christ is the shepherd that we need. He says he knows his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. He runs after them. He brings them back. David knew this, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He rescues us, but he also dwells with us. He rescues us, but next we see that he dwells with us. Look at uh, 37, uh, 26 to 27. I think that's the last uh, text there. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them. Will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And I'll be their God. They'll be my people. The nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. Do you hear the intimacy of these verses? God is saying to his people that in the midst of their grief and darkness and wanderings and feeling forgotten, that he wants to dwell with them. He wants to dwell with them. He's saying, my dwelling place... Where I show up is where my people are. Wherever they go, that's where I'll be. That's what he's saying. You remember that crazy passage that we talked about like a month ago um, with the Ark of the Covenant? It's probably the strangest passage other than this one, sort of, um, that we talked about this week or this, this semester. Why was that important? The Ark of the Covenant signified God's physical presence among his people. That was a big deal. Why? He wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with them. But what he's going at in this passage tonight, he's saying, I don't want to dwell with my people in a wooden box anymore. I actually want to draw near to them in person. And that's actually, you know this, this is what Jesus does himself. God wants to dwell with us. God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, another nickname for him, another title is Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. He's with me. He is right here right now. This is who he is as the shepherd. God wants to dwell with us and he would rather be with you and with me than anywhere else. And that's exactly where he is this evening. I want you to think about this. Um, Think about the experience you've had with a close friend or family member. You enjoy them so much that it doesn't really matter what you do with them. It's just like, it's it's just good. Like, This could be a friend, this could be a family member. I I remember experiencing this um, when my dad came in town recently. I I felt tons of pressure to go into hospitality mode and entertain him the whole time. And I was like, dad, we can do this. And he cuts me off and he was like, I just want to be with you. I don't care what we do. I just want to be with you. That is what's going on. And you all have people in your lives like this. That is God and his words to you and to me. I just want to be with you. I don't care what we're doing. At the point of salvation and forgiveness of sins, all these things, I want to dwell with my people because he delights to be with you. He is a personal God, not a distant deity. He's a personal God. So just as you are right here, right now, he adores you. He longs to dwell with you. You don't need to get your act together and make this itinerary for him. Just be with him. He wants to dwell with you. Because the Bible is not a story about us going up to God. The Bible is a story about Him coming to us. The Bible is not a story about us ascending to God with our good works and our Bible reading plans. And our it's Him coming down because we're so messy. It's Him coming to us to dwell with us. So God rescues us. He dwells with us. That's what we see. He's the true shepherd we need. One day and someday, he will dwell with us forever. He'll wipe away all tears. This is what he's promised. No more sickness, no more cancer, no more pain, no more, no more suffering. Why? Because we'll be with him. And those things cannot exist with Jesus. That's the hope for the Christian. That's the hope for the Christian. And that's what he's going to do when, when he finally returns to the world. So I want to say this. Um, we're going to the second part here, what this means for you and for me. Um, because Christ is our hope, uh, hope fits into the Christian life in a very central way. Christ is our hope. These promises that God has made through his word, that Jesus is really going to fulfill those promises, that's our hope. And it has something to say for our everyday lives, and it has something to say actually the way that we relate to death. So that's, the, that's where we're going with this. What it means for me and you, um, Christ being our hope changes the way that we relate to our life it changes the way that we relate to our death. That's where we're going. So Christian hope in Jesus changes the way that we relate to life. Think about FOMO for a second. Fear of missing out, if you didn't know what that meant. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I know, like 2007 there. Um, what What if I don't maximize on all my potential uh, at Wofford? Um, think of Greek life. So sorority, fraternity stuff, like what? Which fraternity and which sorority will maximize my potential on a social level and my status here on campus and with friendship? Because I, I better maximize uh, campus ministries. Which one am I really going to maximize and flourish spiritually the most? It has to be the like good enough and perfect. You have to maximize. Organizations, study abroad programs, what will maximize my joy and look the absolute best on paper and on social media this summer and during interim, what will look the best? You better maximize. This is where we woke up in the morning. Summer jobs, um, what, will, what will look the best uh, when you're catching up with friends over the summer? Um, because nannying at my hometown is not good enough. I have to go conquer the world. Maximize. Okay, so here's the deal. On paper, most of us, most Christians, um, they believe in a central way that eternal life and heaven is so important for us. We believe that on paper. Sunday school answer, there's lots of heaven answers and eternal life answers. We believe this on paper. But functionally, we really act like this life really is all that there is. We functionally believe that this life really is all that there is. And if you believe that this life is really all that there is, you are actually a slave to your circumstances. You're a slave to your circumstances, and you better maximize. And now every decision is extremely important, and you have tons of pressure on you now. Because that's all there is. This life is all that there is. Think of it this way. When you're you're a slave to your circumstances, um, if things are lining up for you circumstantially, then you're okay. If things are not lining up for you circumstantially, you're not okay. Because you're bound and you're a slave to your circumstances of your life and your experiences. Every decision, every experience now has tons of profound pressure and it weighs us down. But what if there's another way? What if there really is another way? What if there's a hope that's so secure and so steady in Jesus, what he offers, that your circumstances don't determine your joy anymore? What if that's really true? Because that's what Christians historically have believed all throughout church history. And you and I believe that, most of us, on paper. What if that's really true? There's another way that there's a steady hope in Jesus and getting that in our bones and in our hearts and trusting that that's true. Our circumstances aren't determining our joy anymore. This passage says that Jesus is going to return and restore all of creation in a comprehensive way. That's a secure hope. The heart of Christian hope is in Jesus Christ's promise to come make all things new. That's how the Bible ends. And you don't have to be a slave to your circumstances and, and be so bound by the fear of missing out. You don't. One of my friends, I wish I could like teleport him to talk about this because it's hilarious. He hates bucket lists. And he thinks that bucket lists are is actually, they're very weird for Christians. He's like, they're the weirdest things. Like, why would Christians have bucket lists? I'm not going to knock them. I've made them myself. Um, and they're a great way to tackle a lot of life and see a lot of things. And, but if you, do, if you think about it, um, it's kind of weird for Christians to do this. Um, think about this. The, the commitment to tackle a bucket list oftentimes is the belief that this life really is all that there is, so you better tackle the list. Like sometimes we don't think about this, but it is strange if you kind of back up. And think about that. One author puts it this way, your best day on earth will be like a bad dream in heaven. Your best day on earth will be like a bad dream in heaven. Um, Christian hope rooted in Jesus Christ changes the way that we relate to our lives. When you root yourself in that hope and those promises, you can actually begin to say crazy things like, you know, um, I'm looking back on college and it hasn't been the best four years of my life and I'm okay with that. You know, I'm looking back on the semester, and friendship, actually, I still don't feel welcome in this place. I smile, but I don't feel welcome. But you know what? my hope isn't bound by friendship. Jesus has the last word on me. My friendships don't. My friendships don't have the last word. My experiences don't have the last word. because this life isn't all that there is. Hope in Jesus changes the way that we relate to life. I mean, it's like this summer when your friends are posting all of the photos this summer from their exotic adventures and their internships and you nannying in your hometown. And look, I'm not like downplaying that. I hope all of like, I would love for you to nanny. You can nanny Riggins, please. Um, uh, or or uh, you can work at a fast food restaurant and be looking at Instagram stories and seeing all these exotic things, and you just be composed about it. Because your summer plans don't define you. They don't have the last word. I mean, this is very practical because this life isn't all that there is. Jesus and his promises offered here is actually enough. So I, I experienced this actually this past Sunday. I was involved in an ordination service for a local pastor. And in our denomination, these are like, the closest thing to a wedding that you get it's just a huge deal and I was involved in it I was asked to play a very specific role and I haven't been to an ordination service since mine two years ago I was really nervous about it I was definitely gonna be the youngest person there and so I go and uh, I finished what I was doing how to be prepared and I was getting ready and um, I start tying my tie and I look I could not tie this tie at all Um, after the 10th time, it was very clear that this was just not going to happen. I'm running out of time. I'm getting panicked. I'm also extremely picky about my ties. It's not going to happen. Um, so I began to get panicked about this. Seriously, y'all. I'm, so, like, I'm panicked as I talk about it right now. Um, and I, I, remember, I, I remember feeling like, what are they going to think about me? Because I know I'm going to be the only one without a tie. Are they going to be disappointed in me? And I began to be controlled by the opinions of others in my insides, in my heart. I really did. This is Sunday night. Um, And what I should have done is stopped in that moment and, and really rest in the reality that the opinions of others have no final say on my life. They don't. Jesus alone has the last word on my life, not a bunch of old white people that don't even know me. <laughs> um, Jesus does. The hope of Jesus and his promises for the future changes the way that we relate to our lives. It also relates to the way, it changes the way that we relate to death, and that's where we're going next. It changes the way that we relate to death. So the hope offered in Jesus also changes the way that we relate to the inevitability of death. <clears throat> Do you know that Christians were the first people to, to use the term cemetery to describe graveyards? Y'all should fact check me on this. I'm, I'm like 99% sure that this is correct. Y'all can fact check me. But um, And cemetery literally means dormitory. I don't know if you knew that. Um, so you can think of Marsh. <laughs> um, you can think of Lusanne. You gonna think of Lassane? Maybe not senior, senior apartments. Um, but certainly Marsh, so I've heard. Um, here's the thing uh, cemetery and dormitory actually refers to a temporary sleeping place. A temporary sleeping place. So for Christians, y'all, uh, death is not the end. When someone puts you and I in the ground in a cemetery, they're putting us in a dorm- dormitory because we're going to get up again. We're going to get up again. Because death will never have the last word for the Christian. Jesus is really going to come back and wipe away all tears. We will be with God and dwell with him in an everlasting kingdom. Did you notice the language of like forever and everlasting? That's what? That's eternal language. This salvation will not end. So uh, there's a a 27-year-old couple. A few years ago, I heard this story. Uh, Christian couple, newly newlyweds, and uh, the guy is diagnosed with testicular cancer a couple months after they're, they're, uh, they get married. And the cancer spreads everywhere, and uh, he has several rounds of chemo, and he meets with the pastor to talk about it. The pastor is caring for him, talking about funeral arrangements. He's just really at the end at this point. And he told the pastor, he said, I want you to bury me, In a a pink t-shirt, and I want to wear a Star Wars Yoda tie. That's what he said. Pink t-shirt, Star Wars Yoda tie. Why would he want to do this? And my friend told me, he said, because my friend wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he was laughing at death in the face. Pink t-shirt, Yoda tie, laughing at death in the face. Um... Walker, you can go ahead and get this picture up. So um, we're going to show a picture of my, my older brother who I, I told you you guys, a lot of, a lot of you know this. Um, my older brother died uh, January 13th. And uh, stage four colon cancer, he had it for four years, super intense. And um, I spent the last week of my brother's life with him, never left him. It was amazing and we watched uh, tons of Michael Jordan highlights because he not only was a huge Superman fan, like Christopher Reeve, OG Superman, um, but he loved Michael Jordan. We watched tons of highlights. And when I went to, I was driving to Franklin, I called one of my friends and he said, and I told him we're going to watch Jordan highlights and stuff. And he was like, Matt, you know that this is not the last time you're going to get to watch Jordan highlights with Josh. Do you know that? And I was like, yeah I think I know that And he's like even if like even if he dies while you 're there, which you should expect that to happen, this is not going to be the last time you watch these highlights with him and it really it really struck me and because death will not have the last word uh, my my brother when he uh was suffering through this, he died when he was thirty nine um, a couple of weeks before his thirtieth or fortieth birthday, he would go to chemo and he would write these chemo updates um, from the chemo room and he would call them uh he would call everyone y'all. It's so emotional. Sorry. I'm bringing y'all in. Um, he would, uh, he would write these updates and he would call them greetings from the chemo room, greetings from the chemo room. And, uh, this is how one of them go, um, just to show that his, his hope wasn't in Vanderbilt oncologists, but in, in death, not being the last word, greetings from the chemo room. Um, Greetings from the the Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center. This is my 46th chemotherapy treatment. Before I ask you to pray for me, permit me to share 10 reasons that I'm grateful today. And my brother was also a pastor, so he just talked way too much. Um, And he lists 10 things. This is number seven. Jesus is alive. This is the source of my hope. It's the engine that powers my entire life. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is available to me 24-7. And you too, by the way. (laughs) Let me tell you something. The quality of your life will be determined by whether or not you believe that Jesus really came back from the dead. People who actually believe this are marked by a resilient hope that cannot be attained in any other way. The moment Jesus stepped out of the tomb... The clock started ticking on disease and despair and death. Life is brutal, and the only way to flourish in the midst of all of it is to trust and follow the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all, hope for the Christian is rooted in the reality that death won't have the last word, that the King Jesus that David points us to actually came. He actually died as a historical person, and he got up, y'all. He got up. And he destroyed death once and for all. And he's alive. That's our hope. This changes the way we relate to life and changes the way that we relate to death. So I'm going to end. As if we're not emotional enough, I'm going to talk to seniors now. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm talking to all of you. I'm going to zoom in on the seniors. Um, we love you guys. Um, it's been so... <sighs> Oh man, I feel like we should like take a 30-cent minute. Can we just get it all out and then come back? Um, I mean, I love you guys a lot. We're going to miss you a ton. Um, And when I think about the men and women, you're going to be in 5, 10, 15 years. Oh man. (laughs) Oh, the kinds of husbands you'll be and the kinds of wives you'll be. Um, The kinds of surgeons you'll be and and lawyers and um, elders and deacons of churches and Sunday school teachers and nursery workers. Um, (laughs) um, Kind of neighbors you'll be, um, the people you're going to make laugh and the people you're going to cry with. Um, This is really going to happen. And uh, I'm so grateful when I think about that. And they say that you play the long game in campus ministry that, um, you know, you'll see a campus ministry success when you, when, you, when you kind of fast forward 10 years and see what kind of husbands you guys are going to be and what kind of wives you're going to be. And you're just going to be good ones. Um, you're going to be good ones. We're going to miss you a lot. So based off our... Um, <laughs> and we're done. Two things and I'm done. Two things and I'm done. Um, but now this is for everybody, but I, but specifically for seniors, y'all are like, please stop. Um, I know. <laughs> um, two things I would say. Here's what I, I listen, seniors, I want you to hear me, because um, it's the last time. Um, two things. First, abide abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. And here's what I mean. In John 15, when Jesus looks around and he's telling people who he is, and he uses all these I am statements that he would use. I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He'd say, abide with me. Abide with me. And what he was saying is what one person tra- uh, translated and paraphrased. I want you to make your home with me. Make your home with me. Because we don't use abide language anymore, really. Some translations say, remain in me. He want, he's saying, stay with me. Abide with me. Make your home with me. What, think about your home. It's where you're most comfortable. It's where you're most yourself. Make your home with Jesus. Make the most fundamental thing about you is that you are Jesus's and he's not leaving you. Never leave you or forsake you. Abide with Jesus. Second, second and lastly, give yourself to Jesus's church. Give yourself to Jesus's church. The sad reality is that, that for you guys, seniors, um, RUF as, as a campus ministry, in terms of just a student's perspective, it's stopping. It's stopping tonight. We don't have to ignore that. Listen to me. The church endures. The church endures. Like there might not be a large group uh, this time next year. Some bro is going to be preaching a sermon and doing the sacraments. Find a local church. Male or a female. Um, the first, uh, the first thing that I want you to do, uh, the first thing that I want you to do when you get to your hometown and uh, you unpack your bags and you get settled in, is not to call a friend. I want you to get on the internet and find a local church to get to visit that first Sunday. Give yourself to Jesus' church. It will endure. RUF UF will not endure. Jesus made promises to the church he did not make to RUF. That's just reality. Give yourself to a local church. And now I'm done. Um, I will say uh, thank you for an amazing year to all of you guys. And um, I I really thank you for letting me share this part of my life and how this year has been. Y'all have known we have really limped through most of this year. And y'all have carried us in so many ways. So we are so grateful for you. Um, and so... Thank you. Good to be with you. Let me pray.